Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Future Proof podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. This week we have a really extraordinary story for you, an incredible experiment to try and achieve the near impossible, to detect that elusive thing that exists all around us, but we can't see it, dark matter. We're going to speak to Alan Duffy, whose experiment is one mile deep in a gold mine. The setup of this is like Indiana Jones meets Star Trek meets Iron Man or something. You're going to absolutely love it. First, though, if you would like to comment, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. And we get to all of those comments at the end of the podcast. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. You're both very welcome. Ruth, our first story is about mosquitoes. I know. As I was reading this, I found out they are the most deadly animal on Earth. I don't know if you can guess what the other ones are um, after mosquitoes that kill the most humans. Surprisingly, humans are next. That's not so surprising. Then snakes, maybe not so surprising. But then dogs. Dogs kill the fourth most humans of any animal. Anyway, that's an aside. This is about mosquitoes uh, and particularly yellow fever mosquitoes, which are found everywhere. But they feed almost exclusively on humans. And scientists are really interested in them because they are the vector for things like Zika, dengue virus and yellow fever, not surprisingly. And we knew before... Oh, everyone hates mosquitoes. And, you know, we knew before that CO2 was one of the ways mosquitoes found their prey, because obviously when we exhale, we breathe out CO2. We also know that there's a genetic component because with twins, identical twins get attacked the same way by mosquitoes and fraternal twins don't. So that if you think you're one of those people that gets eaten alive by mosquitoes while someone sitting beside you isn't, you're you're probably right. But this study was really trying to look to see For those mosquitoes that do exclusively bite humans, what is it that they're picking up and how do they detect it? And and there was a huge technical challenge here for the team. Uh, And and what they did was they created first genetically modified mosquitoes whose brains lit up depending on what they were sensing with their antenna. So they used CRISPR-Cas9 to make a fluorescent protein built into the nerve centers of the mosquitoes. They then had to deliver, create a special wind tunnel to deliver smells to these mosquitoes and then they were use a very special microscope to see what parts of their brain were lighting up. Uh, so they use smells from 16 different humans, from rats, from guinea pigs, from two quails, a sheep and four dogs. Um, for, for the dogs and the sheep, they they got fleeces, sheep fleeces, and they, they got uh, hairs from a dog. But actually for the people, it was hilarious. They got people to lie naked in a Teflon bag with a tube attached to the mosquito sensing area so that the fibres from the clothes wouldn't interfere. So, I mean, I can only imagine what this lab looks like. I have all sorts of visions of it in my head. Um, And when they looked at the mosquito brains, the mosquito brain has 60 different nerve centers called glomeruli. And the team thought loads of them would be involved. But in fact, only two lit up in specific responses to chemicals in humans. And using sort of analysis, they were able to narrow down what those two chemicals were. And they're actually called decanal and undecanal. 
they, they have a sort of citrusy smell and they're found in all different proportions in different kinds of human smell. Um, so, so this is really interesting because, you know, firstly, they've patented a compound that can attract mosquitoes to this smell. So it might be, you know, the best thing ever to get them away from your summer barbecue or if, if you're if you're in, in a tropical zone. Um, but it's just it, I think the simplicity of the result was what amazed people that there was this incredible evolutionary uh, development to allow mosquitoes to specifically target their prey. How did they image their brains? Did they put them in an MRI? No, they they actually have this thing called an arena and that they put the mosquitoes in, but they actually can see the fluorescence from the the, the, the head of the mosquito because the, the, the nerve cells are linked to these very specific parts of their antenna. Wow. Oh, lots of questions around here. Sorry. <laughs> Shane, our second story has to do with meat. It does. And this is an exciting use of mathematical modelling where they have, uh, they've, looked at what would happen if we were to move away from uh, cow meat beef to microbial meat, which we'd know as corn, you know, which is uh, produced in steel tanks by fermenting delicious soil based fungus with sugar and other nutrients. And you can you can make a meat substitute and what? people do use it. Yeah, you can buy it in is, is any that, shop. Is that how they make it? It is. I thought they just munched up vegetables. <laughs> Well, I suppose a massive tank that's uh, fermenting soil-based fungus is not a million miles away from that. But uh, um, I think any mass-produced food process always sounds disgusting, you know. So, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah th- this is a model that's done by scientists in Potsdam and was published this week in Nature. And they've looked at what would happen if we were to, first of all, switch to 20% microbial meat by 2050. And they have accounted for population growth. And they, they see that or they predict that uh, that would be associated with only an 11% methane uh, emissions drop. And um, interestingly, a 50% drop in the annual deforestation rate. So when cows are out on um, out in fields, firstly, they need fields to eat grass. They need food in the uh, seasons when the grass isn't growing that has to be grown itself. And they continuously belch methane, which is a, a very carbon rich greenhouse gas. So it's not so good. And um, so uh, 50% deforestation drop from just replacing a fifth of our meat with whatever you describe. Yes, a, a fifth of our meat with, with this microbial uh, alternative. Um, and As if opposed we, to presumably actually eating plant based um, alternatives. Well, yeah, this is this is a thing that uh, but like they're they're just doing modeling because, you know, as we get richer, we want to eat more meat. And so they're 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 assuming that the world isn't going to go entirely vegetarian, which would be the the, the best thing to do. Um, if they were to uh, replace 50 percent of the of the, the grass uh, cow based beef with the microbial alternative, there'd be an 80 percent drop in deforestation and a similar drop in methane emission. Right. So it's 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 not a linear progression. Right. And if it was to move up to 80 percent replacement uh, of beef with uh, the microbial alternative, there'd be a 90 percent decrease in deforestation and a similar uh, decrease in emissions. Now, the the model is very sophisticated in that it it does look at what has to go into the production of the uh, alternative. So they don't assume that that's energy neutral. It needs a lot of water and it needs electricity. All right. Um, Ruth, our third story has to do with uh, the unpleasant subject of fecal transplants. 
Yeah, I know. If you didn't like uh, meat grown from microbes, you're really not going to like this one, Jonathan. But but it might actually, it, you know, similar. Actually, when you hear the science, you might be convinced. Um, so you're right. Fecal transplants, essentially taking poo from one person and putting it inside another is a treatment that's been used now for a few years, particularly when people have an infection with a bacteria called C. difficile, which is very hard to treat with antibiotics. Um, and it's been started to, it's been looked at now as a therapy for other things, particularly like ulcer, ulcer ulcerative colitis or other things related to your gut. Is that uh, why it's it, called C. difficile? Because it's difficult to cure or is that just a... I don't know. Genuinely, I was genuinely question. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'll have to check. Um, but, but new research from scientists at the Quadrum Institute and the University of East Anglia that was published in Microbiome this week is looking at the role of the microbiome in ageing. And again, we, we already know that there's a link between ageing and your microbiome. Uh, work from the Alimentary Pharmabiotic Centre in Cork has shown us, for example, that populations in nursing homes end up with much less diversity in the bacteria in their gut, and that's linked to increased frailty. But here, scientists used a mouse model and they transferred gut microbes from old mice into young mice and vice versa. And then they looked to see what happened. And they particularly looked at what happened in terms of inflammation. And it was really uh, surprising results because what they found was when they put the old mouse uh, bugs into the young mouse, the, the lining of the gut lost its integrity and bacteria started to get into the circulation in the bloodstream, triggering the immune system. And, and kind of what, what we know this is problematic. And, and we actually saw that specific immune cells in the brain associated with aging were activated and also specific proteins associated with degeneration of the eye. Um, wow. So all of these detrimental things started to happen in the young mice and vice versa, we started to see beneficial effects in the, in the reverse experiment. This is amazing. And yet at the same time, perhaps not surprising if you've been listening to the programme for the past number of years, because we continue to hear these amazing stories of how the microbiome in our guts and on our bodies is affecting all sorts of things from mental illness to mood to uh, behaviour and food choices, as well as susceptibility to other sorts of diseases and inflammation. Absolutely. And, and they did look to see what are the products which the bacteria in the gut are producing? How are they breaking down our diet? And they did find shifts in fat and vitamin metabolism, which they think could be related to, to the inflammation as well. But, but you're absolutely right. I mean, everything we look at now, whether it's brain function or really any kind of disease, we're seeing a link with the microbiome. So the whole kind of you are what you eat and the importance of maintaining that diverse diet, a plant-based diet, lots of fiber. Uh, really, I think, you know, if you're not in line to have somebody's poo put into you yet, keep an eye on your diet, your exercise and all of that. <laughs> uh, Shane, our final story has to do with Oreos. Yeah, but before we move on from poo, I googled it and difficile does come from difficult, Jonathan, so you're, you're bang on there. Um, yeah, the last one, uh, from poo to Oreos. Uh, Oreos, for those who don't know, are sandwich biscuits. So they have two wafers with the creamy uh, material in between. And during lockdown, uh, scientists, or sorry, engineers in MIT, looked at why when you twist an Oreo to kind of open it, the, the, the creamy stuff on the inside always sticks to just one side and it doesn't split evenly between the two. And... Um, the, the PhD student that did this uh, was interested in nanomaterials and rheology, which is the study of how things flow. And um, they said, look, I think we could we could actually 
do a little bit of experiment here and try and figure out why does it always stick to one side? So they built um, a rheometer at home, right? With a 3D printer and they've made that available online. It included, uh, it was a MacGyver uh, experiment. It had like pennies and rubber bands and all that stuff. And so they glued um, both sides of the Oreo. So the two plates kind of top and bottom, they put the Oreo in between and then the two plates twist in opposite directions. And so that, that, that mimics the twisting action that your hands would make with an Oreo. And they looked at... To make um, it more scientific. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, and probably got <laughs> millions of dollars worth of, of money to do the research. No, no, they didn't. So they looked at uh, varying the thickness of the cream because you can buy different types of Oreos. You can buy different flavor Oreos. So they looked at that. They looked at uh, when the Oreos were made based on their best before dates. And crucially, this is the important one, the position of the Oreo in the box that it came from. And that's where they saw the dependent um, the variable. So they found that uh, Oreos in one row tended to, to all kind of uh, deform in one direction. And then the next row will go the opposite way. So they, they realized that Oreo cream sticks to one side as um, an after effect of manufacturing. So that when the Oreo is made in the factory, you have your biscuit, it squirts some cream on top, and then there's a delay for a few seconds before the next biscuit is put on top. And that delay is what eventually leads to the Oreo cream sticking to one side more than the other. I think you can zoom out and you can say, why would they do this? And I used to do this when I taught physics to engineers. So we looked at boiling eggs and dipping biscuits in tea and all of this sort of stuff. It allows you to think about science in a fun way, but it's also quite interesting for them um, that work with analogous complex fluids that have materials like carbon nanotubes, et cetera, in them. I was going to, I mean, obviously the follow-up question is why, but um, why not? Often part of it is you learn a lot along the way. Um, you do, and it's fun. Um, Shane Bergen from ECD and uh, Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thanks very much. Now, in our efforts to better understand the very fabric of our universe, we sometimes have to think outside the box. It may seem strange then to think that in our search for the elusive dark matter, we need not to look to the depths of the solar system, the Milky Way, or the universe itself, but to the ground beneath our feet. Alan Duffy, professor in astrophysics and director of Space Technology and Industry Institute at Swinburne University of Technology in Australia, that's a mouthful, he joins me now to talk about the Stahl Underground Physics Laboratory held inside an active gold mine a kilometre beneath the surface of the Earth. Um, now, I can see you, um, Alan. Uh, our listeners can't. Um, it does not look like you are one kilometre beneath the surface of the Earth right now. T- but tell me about this active gold mine. Uh, arguably, I'm, I'm further underground from, from you, John. I'm about 12,000 kilometres on the other side of the Earth. But yes, this is uh, an active gold mine in a, a little Victorian town called uh, Stoll. And we were very fortunate to... Uh, be supported to develop a, a national facility, uh, a, a wonderful, almost cathedral-esque height uh, deep underground. You, you have this vaulting 12-meter high ceiling chiseled out of the very earth itself. Uh, and the entire experience is, is pretty surreal as it's one of the cleanest sites in Australia, uh, but very much in a very dirty active gold mine. Wow. Um- why does it need to be so clean? And can you describe what the what the lab looks like and just give us a picture of it? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, just just uh, I'll sort of take you on this this um, picture, if you will. You you 
firstly, you have to get all the high-vis gear on. You're in a truck and you drive into this dark tunnel as it as it just plunges into the earth. And then you're driving for the better part of 40 minutes, slow, ever so slowly uh, going down this this gradual decline around and around and around in the dark, your, your hazard lights flashing all the while off the tunnel rock around you and almost going down in not not quite in time but you're seeing the different history of this you know dig that's been going for over a century and then you bottom out and you turn a corner and there is this vaulting door in front of you very impressively large uh, frame and that's for the very rare times where we open it to take the act in a large experiments piece of equipment and otherwise it's sealed the entire thing has uh, airlock entry and then you get out of your high-vis gear you put your clean uh, uh, clothes on there's even a shower facility and all of this is because we're so sensitive and experiment in the hunt for dark matter that you can't risk taking in any well, contaminants with you and, and very much sitting in an active gold mine. I can assure you get pretty dirty and de- on the way. Um, but even if it weren't for that, you would still need this kind of level of background removal, as it were, because we've gone to this you know, incredible depths to escape uh, naturally occurring radiation. And the last thing we want to do is, is bring it in with us. It sounds absolutely amazing. Why are you in a gold mine? Why do you need to be underground? So the, the key is when looking for dark matter, this particle that we hope is going to collide with our experiment, I'm sure we'll get onto that in a second, these experiments uh, will flash uh, a little bit of light when struck by dark matter, but they'll do the same when struck by anything. And in particular, uh, radiation from space known as cosmic rays, as well as radiation from our sun. And these cosmic rays are, are incredibly more frequent uh, uh, collisions as it were on the surface you know basically for every one time you might get hit by dark matter on the surface you'll be hit you know a billion times by these cosmic rays so it would be impossible to to tease out that signal so what we do is go a kilometer underground and use that rock as a natural shield against the radiation from space and the sun essentially you're you're going to the depths and dark of a mine to essentially hide in the dark from the the sun both its light but also these particles but in the depths of that mine, the dark matter is easily able to travel through that rock. Uh, so hopefully that's all the signal that's left, provided, of course, you haven't just walked in with a load of naturally occurring radiation on your clothes or, or in your shoes and uh, traipsed it into the into the lab. So this is why we go to the extraordinary depths, going deep, being shielded by uh, that rock from the cosmic rays and airlock and everything, all the other standards, all the other equipment that we use to ensure that we have a nice clean background to go looking for the very, very rare times the dark matter might hit our detector. This may be a stupid question, but um, aren't there other particles that travel through the Earth? How do you separate what could be dark matter from those? Oh, look, that's wonderful. Yes. So so I like to use the phrase that dark matter is, is a ghost-like particle, right? It doesn't interact uh, with with light, as far as where it doesn't shine or absorb light, that's the dark bit. It's it's got gravity. It's it's mass. So there's the matter. Um, uh, but this dark matter is a ghost because by not interacting with the light, it's able to travel through solid walls, uh, you, I, the entire Earth itself. Now, it's not the first ghost particle. The original ghost particle is the neutrino, and in fact, the the challenge will be we're not sensitive enough to detect the lower energy neutrinos that come from the sun. 
higher energy ones have already been detected and Nobel Prizes awarded. We're not so sensitive to those, but if we build our detector big enough and maybe only a generation or two from now, uh, we'll, we'll see those, those neutrinos, those other kinds of particles. Uh, and in fact, at that point, you, be, you get blinded by those, those neutrinos from the sun. So even at the depths of, of a gold mine, you're, you're still able to see the sun and be blinded by at least in neutrinos. Uh, but thankfully, that's not my problem today. That is a problem for a future scientist to solve uh, a couple of years, maybe from now when we upgrade the detector. So talk me through the experiment because it is a, it's part of a, a twin sort of experiment. Is that right? Why, why are there two of these either side of the Earth? Uh, and what is the aim of the experiment? Yeah, so the, the SABRE is actually, uh, as you say rightly, a, a double experiment. There's one in uh, Stoll uh, here in Australia, and there is quite literally the other side of the Earth uh, in, in Italy at the Grand Sasso Laboratories, which is built within a mountaintop to use in this You don't make it easy on yourselves, do you? Well, look, I mean, these cosmic rays are, are very penetrating. You really have to go to extraordinary lengths to get away from them. In this case, you have to go into a mountain, in their case, the Alps, to, to be shielded from it. Um, the reason is we have a signal. There is a claimed detection of dark matter by a, a team, an experiment uh, known as Dama Libra. And what they saw was over the course of a year, the amount of of dark matter they were seeing was changing. It would peak in June and it would be less in December. Uh, and this is exactly the kind of signal that we all would have hoped to see for the very good reason that as our sun travels around the Milky Way, uh, it's flying through a cloud of, of dark matter. The dark matter is just minding its own business and we're flying through it. So it appears as if it's rushing towards us. Very familiar to anyone who stuck their hand out of of a car uh, window, the air, even on the stillest of days, uh, you know, it's just minding its own business. Individual atoms are moving, but in the main on a still day, it's not. But when your car drives through it, you can feel the force of that air on you. Now, of course, that's your motion through it in exactly the same way. We have our motion through the dark matter. So we know it's coming uh, from that, that direction. Our sun's motion uh, in the main is traveling through the galaxy. Half the year, our Earth is in that same direction, so we get a stronger wind of dark matter. And for half the year, it's in the opposite direction. So you would expect to see when they both directions align maximally, that's in June, and uh, and the wind picks up and we get more collisions or expect to see more collisions, and half the year, you get less. The challenge with the Dama Libra claim is that no one else has ever seen that. And as has been you know, uh, rightly pointed out, something else that changes in the year is well, the seasons. So perhaps what's happening is they're mistaking a background, some other thing that is is tied to the seasons, you know, increased amount of snow or ice on top of the mountain, shielding it more, for example, during the winter. Um, so one easy way to try to determine that is to look for the signal from other side, from the opposite sides of the planet. I say easy. <laughs> it's a simple approach, maybe not easy. Uh, <laughs> and in that sense, what you're seeing is if it's tied to the dark matter, our motion through the galaxy around the sun, then we'll both see a peak in June and we'll both see a decrease, uh, a minimum in December. But right. if it's to do with the seasons, you know, our, I'm just coming into to winter now. You guys are obviously uh, heading into summer. 
Uh, so we would see opposite signs, opposite, opposite effects. So that's the, the simplest way to tease out, is it something local to the earth and the seasons, the time of the year, or is it something to do with our motion through space and perhaps it is the dark matter? Well, fingers crossed we're going to find out soon. Very clever. C can you um, tell me what the actual physical experiment is made of? Because you said when these particles pass through it, it flashes. What do you mean? Talk, talk to me about the equipment you're using to capture this elusive dark matter. Yeah, so this is a, a pretty phenomenal experiment. Uh, the, the heart of it is based around sodium iodide crystals, not too dissimilar to the kind of salt crystals you might, you know, break up and put on your on your chips. Um, a little different, that's sodium chloride. But the idea is that the sodium iodide will scintillate will flash when struck by dark matter just technically for anyone who wants to know you dope it in thallium just to take it the edge of the the light you make it in uh, visible and optical um, you place two extremely sensitive cameras either side of a crystal rod of these that you've grown you wrap the entire it thing like some, it, it sounds like something from superman it's like a like a, almost like a, <laughs> a water bottle or a coke can of crystal yeah. that that has cameras that flashes yeah, that's that right. right? In, in time, in, in terms of physical size, very much uh, water bottle size, these two PMTs, photomultivar tubes, very sensitive cameras, either end, the entire thing wrapped in copper. So it's it's completely dark in there. And, you know, if if a particle passes through and collides with one of the atoms, it's it's a snookable like collision we describe it as. So the atom goes flying and in the process will emit the light. So again, the dark matter doesn't flash doesn't emit the light it's the recoiling atom that was struck by the dark matter is is in turn going to emit this light that hopefully we will detect with these sensitive what, cameras what yeah. color does it flash uh oh good question after you dope it with thallium it must be uh trying to think of the wavelength it'll be a probably a pretty broad spectrum actually probably a little bluer than 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 red i would guess but yeah that's a good question you've got me Jonathan. <laughs> uh, good i like that um so the, uh, there's another part to it right um because you need to be sure that what you're capturing is dark matter and so you have liquid benzene what is that for yeah so the, if the heart of this is the crystals uh the bulk of the detector is very much uh, uh larger and uh, a little more uh, shall we say traditional, those crystals have to be ultra pure. They, they would be blinded by their own naturally occurring radiation if they had contaminants. And, and we're talking, you know, one part in a trillion uh, purities. I mean, uh, uh, sorry, impurity levels, absolutely staggering efforts by the team at ANU and Princeton. What is then surrounding the crystals? Because you will, no matter where you go on Earth, there's always naturally occurring radiation. Uh, that's just a fact of life. And we have to shield it. We have to know that it's dark matter and not something else that's collided because essentially dark matter is such a rare interaction, such a ghost-like event that if the crystal is struck by dark matter, that's one flash, you've in, immersed it in a ginormous vat of 10 tons of liquid uh, alcohol benzene, uh, LAB, or a scintillator fluid that also flashes when struck by anything. So... By immersing it in this liquid, the idea is that dark matter will travel through the liquid, never colliding, and just by chance hit the crystal. So one flash could be dark matter. Anything else will almost certainly strike the fluid 
cause a flash in there and then hit the crystal. So in other words, if your crystal flashes, you look around to the liquid that surrounds it and say, was there a flash in that too as well? If so, there's no chance the ghost would have struck twice. So that is absolutely not going to be uh, dark matter. Now, it could be the dark matter hit the fluid, you know, and then never hit the crystal, but you can't tell the difference. So in other words, we're being quite conservative in, in that regard. And that's known as an, an active uh, veto experiment. Uh, it's a very clever idea by Frank uh, Calaprice. And uh, we're hopeful that that's going to allow us to tease out that that rare occasional collision of dark matter from all of the other kinds of naturally occurring radiation that you get well in, when you build anything quite frankly you're talking about extreme sensitivity of your materials and and that means you have to go to extraordinary lengths to protect this experiment from radiation um, in Grand Sasso they have gone to um, even more imaginative lengths, I suppose, to, to find the materials they need for their experiment. Can you tell me about the Roman galleys? Yes, this is very much Indiana Jones-esque, but I, I can assure you it's very, very real. So the, I, the one of the main challenges with... Um, uh, so the be beautiful like, work of Sabre is that we, we have an active veto. We can figure out if it's naturally occurring radiation. For experiments that don't have that, that capability, they have to be very worried about natural radiation in, in part. In fact, in fact, I shouldn't say it's natural at all. Some of the radiation we have on Earth is from nuclear testing. So you have to source metals for your experiment and in particular for the shielding of your experiment that have somehow avoided being contaminated by nuclear testing in the last, you know, well, since 45, essentially, with, with the commencement of the nuclear programs. That means that you have to find sources of metal that have essentially been, well, trapped under under the sea for that period or longer. And in fact, the longer they've been uh, submerged, the more time they've had to lose their natural radiation as well. Very, you know, slight amounts, but everything helps. So there are uh, expeditions to find these ancient Roman galleys, the lead ingots that they were trading uh, in those times and take them from the depths of the med, uh, take the top layer off, give that to a museum, that's for historical purposes, and the rest to be actually melted and used to form lead shielding, for example, which is a highly effective way to avoid the background radiation. And because it's been protected deep underground, uh, under the sea for all that time, it's not been exposed to this fallout radiation, but also has lost its its inherent uh, uh, radioactivity, at least a little bit has cooled. So it, this is the yeah. level of, of, of extraordinary effort that you go to try to find these this ghost-like uh, dark matter. Can I ask who came up with the idea of finding sunken Roman ingots under the mm. sea that, that would have been... I mean, that is just an absolute genius idea, but it's the sort of thing that you can't imagine anyone ever going, I know what we'll do. How, where did that idea come from? Yeah, look, it, it's a great question. I don't know if any if any one person can claim it. It is the natural consequence, however, of very uh, smart people posed with a problem and no limits placed to their solution, if you like. It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, there are other sources of of metal that one can use that has also been um, uh, protected from radiation. For example, uh, in Scapa Flow, the, the German fleet that scuttled itself at the end of World War One, 
is is a great source of of steel uh, for some of the structural support. So there's any number of these these concepts or ideas about where can you go to find this kind of metal. For us, we're not so uh, uh, tied to that level of uh, removal of the background radiation. We still have to be careful about the material that we use, and everything is tested in in saber for that background. But yeah, it is the wonderful example of of a smart, unconstrained mind trying to find a solution that is a very tricky problem to solve. So all of this is built around the concept of dark matter. And yet the only thing that we have to suggest that it's there is a working model of the universe and our hope that the maths that we have put together aren't off from the observable universe in some way, right? I mean, how certain, uh, you, you, you can speak to me in perhaps um, lay language rather than a sigma number, how certain are you that you're working on um, on something that really does exist? I mean, there is a possibility that maybe dark matter does not exist. I'm, as an astronomer, very uh, confident that dark matter exists. There is something out there that the gravity of which is is pulling the objects we can see around in this strange and unexpected way. So there's definitely dark matter. Now, is the dark matter a, a new kind of particle, a particle that we might be able to detect with our experiment of a given candidate type? Mm, look, that's that's a little uh, less certain. I'll be I'll be uh, fair. That project lead Professor Elizabeth Barbario has a wonderful statement around this, and that is that we go to search for that particle. And if we find it and we confirm Dama Libra, wonderful, we have advanced knowledge. If we rule it out, we have done a service to science and allow us to focus on other possible candidates. So either way, we can't lose in terms of gaining knowledge. I'll be honest, I'm very much hoping we find the dark matter as this candidate and the search <laughs> ends at that point. Uh, it's been nearly seven years since I joined this project. But look, nature doesn't have to be kind. It doesn't have to give up uh, its secrets that easily. And the dark matter could just be more elusive, more ghost-like than we might hope. And no one said science had to be easy. It's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you. Amazing experiments. I really do hope you find dark matter one kilometre down in a gold mine in Australia. Alan Duffy, Professor in Astrophysics and Director of Space Technology and Industry Institute at Swinburne University of Technology in Australia. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Could you imagine if you found it, like actually found dark matter with this experiment, like it would be the biggest discovery in natural science in 50 years? Um, The very best of luck to him, as I say. Uh, Time to look back at some of your comments from last week's program. And we were talking uh, to Corey, uh, who is a roller coaster designer. He did um, Kuhulen and he was explaining a little bit about the physics and the design and what goes into making a a roller coaster. And I was talking about one of the ones uh, with him in France that goes backwards. And he said it's just properly horrible. They just inversed one of the trains on a on a roller coaster and just made everything that much more freaky. Someone's texted in saying the mummy ride in Universal Florida goes backwards for a part of it. It's the best. A gobstopper. <laughs> Just no thank you. Just not into it. Um, don't like, don't want. I mean, I, I, I get the idea of wanting a thrill. I just, that's not how I get my thrills. Don't ask me the follow up question that is in your head. Um, secondly, um, Matthew Cobb was on Twitter giving out because 
I must say, we have a team here, and they are a great team. Um, but whoever is on the Twitter that day um, was talking about what was coming up in the show and claimed that we'd found DNA on meteorites, which um, is not correct, as Matthew Cobb says. He says, they didn't find DNA on meteorites. They found nucleotides, one of the components of DNA and RNA. Very different. Indeed it is. Finding DNA on meteorites would be quite something, um, considering it's such a complex molecule and um, that it is essentially a sign of life. Um, if we're finding DNA on meteorites, that is a stop everything, aliens exist, and we can prove it moment. So um, no DNA found on um, on meteorites. Quite right, Matthew, and apologies. Um, and finally, uh, a nice tweet from Bora Quinlan, who says, we'll definitely catch that podcast tomorrow on my cycle up the hills. Still a brilliant show, years after years. How do you do it? Um, now, he was responding to the fact that we'd found DNA on meteorites, so maybe he might be disappointed when he listens to the podcast. So sorry about that, Boric. Um, well, the way we, we do it is by making up headlines that don't actually uh, represent what's going on in the science. Um, that's what we've resorted to now, it appears. No, I'm just joking. It, it, I mean, it does happen every once in a while that um, we're, you know, we're quickly doing up the Twitter. You don't sense check what you're, you're doing because Twitter is one of those things that just um, uh, it, it forces you to do stupid things, I find as evidenced by uh, the latest controversy. And then uh, Paul Nolan says, uh, I'm not quite sure what this is apropos of, but, uh, you know, I might as well just throw it in there. He says, um, uh, ATU and Irish Clinical have announced the launch of Ireland's first Masters in Clinical Measurement Physiology. There is currently a significant shortage of clinical measurement physiologists across Ireland and international. What is that? What is a clinical measurement physiologist? Um... I might. Oh, we might. We might figure that out. Um, Aiden's up with me because he's got COVID. In case you're wondering where, why I'm talking into the void, um, we might um, follow that up, Aiden, if you're listening, which I indeed hope you are. <laughs> um, that's it from us on this week's uh, podcast. Thanks to Aiden McAlvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Jojo Cardozo, who was on sound. We'll be back with more future proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.